Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am incredibly joyful most days, and I would say I'm extra joyful on days when I get to speak to Jay Warner Wallace. I get him for the whole hour, and you know that's a big treat treat for me because I always learn so much, and I know you do too, and it always gives us a chance to open up the phone lines and uh, we can ask any kind of questions we have about apologetics. And his new, his latest book that he's written, he wrote uh, with Sean McDowell, it's called So the Next Generation Will Know. And that is uh, preparing young Christians for a challenging world. And we all know it is a challenging world. And we're going to chat with him about that as well. We're also going to open up uh, the text line. Let us know what your questions are. 877 I'm going to keep things short so I can get Jim on as soon as possible. So let me take 60 seconds and we'll get him on. Faith Radio is so much more than just radio. We are a multimedia ministry encouraging people to connect faith to life every day through a variety of platforms. Now, you may have been driving, captivated by a Faith Radio interview, but not able to listen to it all because you had an appointment. Or maybe you had an extra busy day and you missed your favorite show. Well, thankfully, you can go back and listen to any of our programs in their entirety at MyFaithRadio.com by clicking on Podcasts. You can also download the free Faith Radio app to listen to any past programs or check out the live stream. Just search for Faith Radio in iTunes or Google Play. And for Alexa and Amazon Echo devices, just say Enable Faith Radio. Then say Play Faith Radio to listen to the live stream. Use your connected device to stay encouraged and equipped every day through Faith Radio. You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. All right, we're going to have a great hour. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. He's a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective. He's a very, very popular national speaker, best-selling author. And his books, if you have not purchased one, you need to do that. You need to make that a priority because they are fantastic. Cold Case Christianity, Cold Case Christianity for Kids, God's Crime Scene, God's Crime Scene for Kids. I can go on and on, and I think I will. Uh, Forensic Faith, which is great. Forensic Faith for Kids, Alive, so the next generation will know is the one that is his most recent book, and it's helping uh, preparing young Christians for a challenging world. Jim, nice to have you back. Well, good to be here. You're so kind to me. I appreciate it. Well, I I, I, I like to gush about you because I, I still think that the presentation of the gospel you gave that I saw you do live was one of the most succinct and persuasive presentations I've ever seen. Well, that's, that's kind of you to say, you know, I think a lot of it is for me is trying to figure out how to, um, you know, everyone comes to this with a different skill set, right? And so mm-hmm. for me, a lot of the skill set I tried to bring was just, you know, how do we, even though you may have a truth claim and you may know it's true, like when you do a criminal case in front of a jury, 
you still have an, an obstacle of trying to convince a jury persuasively that what is true is true. And as the other side is, is going to kind of ramp up and do their best to um, kind of obfuscate or to make it unclear <laughs> that, that the case that you're presenting is true. So we have a culture right now that is doing its best to kind of uh, blur the lines a little bit. And this is what happens in criminal trials, right? So so I think sometimes what I'm trying to bring to the game, if nothing else, is just the ability to um, to make a case persuasively. Um, and that's, that's, that's really the challenge, even when you know you have the truth and you know you have the right suspect and you know that this guy is the guy. Um, you still got to convince 12 jurors. And even if, if just one doesn't believe it's true, um, you're going to get a hung jury and, and you're not going to accomplish the goal. So um, I think that's probably what I try to focus on the most. Yeah. What I loved when I heard you speak was how important circumstantial evidence is. And um, it it is really what is mostly presented in court, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, people don't understand. They'll say things like, well, you don't have any hard evidence. And this is often presented uh, to us as Christians, you know, when we uh, make a claim and, and people will say, well, there's no hard evidence for this. Well, the hard evidence is not a category. We don't, <laughs> you know, we don't use hard evidence. It's right. either direct evidence or indirect evidence. That's it. Now, you might say it's persuasive or not unpersuasive. I think that's what people generally mean. But, you know, things like DNA, that's that's indirect evidence. The only thing that qualifies as direct evidence is eyewitness accounts, mm -hmm. eyewitness statements. So, so um, the other word for indirect evidence is circumstantial evidence. So, so that means that 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 much of the evidence you might bring in, in front of a jury, uh, behaviors of the suspect. Um, uh, statements he made after the fact, um, the things he did, uh, fingerprints, DNA, um, any material evidence, comparisons of different material forms of evidence, ballistics, things like that. These are all indirect evidence uh, claims that we we use in court, uh, also known as circumstantial evidence. So that if you if you realize the difference, right? These are the only distinctions, direct and indirect. Then you realize that man, that's a lot of different things that I used to think of as either hard or whatever you want to call it. That's really just indirect evidence. And, and one more thing comes into play. If I've got a case where all I have is three eyewitnesses who can tell me who did it because they were there and they can identify the guy and they can say, yep, he's sitting over there at the end of the table. That's the guy who did it. Well, that's that's a direct evidence case because I'm using eyewitness accounts, eyewitness uh, testimony to make the case, right? Well, to be honest, a lot of those kinds of, of criminal trials just never occur. Th those are so, um, so direct, so easy to make that the defendant takes a plea bargain early on, never goes to trial. The ones that go to trial are the ones in which I don't have eyewitness accounts. I don't have eyewitnesses who saw it. Mm -hmm. And those are far more likely to go to trial. So that's why the cases I bring in front of a jury are uh, have always been entirely circumstantial. Uh, but we win those cases, and that's why I'm trying to help people see that, hey, you know, if you can win these kinds of cases in a criminal trial, you could use the same approach to to argue for the existence of God or to argue for the reliability of Scripture. And by the way, our young people need to understand that that is doable because they've been told by the culture rather convincingly that it's not doable, that, you know, they have claims over there on the secular side uh, made online, uh, made on their smartphones, in which they'll say these things are true and, you know, we have the science to back us up. Mm -hmm. You guys just have blind faith and you trust that this is true, but you can't even make a case for this with evidence and you couldn't make a case with it with science. Well, that, I've written two books in which I do just that, make a case for it using indirect evidence, make a case for it using science. Um, I think this is doable and, and our kids need to see that it's doable. They may still reject the claims. 
they may still decide, hey, I don't want to believe this is true. I, and I don't they may not even find the evidence persuasive. But the idea that we couldn't even begin to make a case evidentially is just false. And, and it's it, it kind of betrays the, the long, rich um, evidential history of Christianity to begin with. So I think it's important for us to be able to make that clear to our kids. Now, I always say if, if you want a season in which you reject this claim and do run off and do your own stupid thing because you're chasing your passions, I get that. I wasn't even a Christian myself until I was 35. So I, I understand that, that an impulse. That's on you. If you don't think this is true because it can't be demonstrated with evidence, that's on me because I haven't done a good enough job to persuade you or to show you that, in fact, it could be. And I think as a parent and as a you know a pastor, as somebody now who's involved in educating this generation we're calling Gen Z, I feel that burden, right? Mm-hmm. They, may, they may still chase a season of, of passion, a season of, I don't want to believe this is true, and that's okay. But uh, if they don't think it, it's true because there's no evidence for it, then I have failed them as their leader. Yeah. So, Jim, just a quick detective question. How often— did you think or discover your eyewitness was not telling the truth? Oh, I've had a couple of those. My dad had a few of those in his career before me, mm-hmm. and I'm sure my son will have his share as well. And typically what we're trying to do is to to get to that. You know, Luckily, we would sometimes catch this uh, as we're prepping for the trial. Mm-hmm. So we have a collection of witnesses who maybe aren't going to – I don't really have direct cases. I have indirect cases. But maybe the witness is going to testify to something else other than uh, having seen the, the – uh, the uh, uh, suspect at the crime or having seen the suspect do their crime. Maybe he's going to be an expert witness who's going to come in. He's going to testify to some piece of evidence. And then we've discovered, oh, this guy's not even telling us the truth. And luckily we caught it as we were drilling down and trying to prepare him to withstand the cross-examination. And that's when we discovered, or we discovered earlier in the investigation. I've had a, the last, the last place you want to discover it is in trial, when you're doing a, a case that's being featured by Dateline and their cameras are in the courtroom <laughs> with you, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's that's not when you want to discover this. So so a lot of it is. But luckily for me, you know, I don't have this kind of case that rests solely on the eyewitness testimony of somebody. Um, I, I typically have cases where I'm, I'm piecing them together in other ways. But there is a system in place that we vet, that we use, and these we try to teach this system to eyewitness to uh, jurors when they're assessing eyewitnesses, and we give them in the jury instructions in California. I think like thirteen different instructions, thirteen questions that jurors can ask in their heads as they're listening to eyewitnesses on the stand, and then they can evaluate the eyewitness on the basis of those thirteen questions that they ask themselves about the eyewitness. Well. You could do that with the uh, gospel accounts as well, and that's what I tried to do in the first book, right? Just look at those questions and say, hey, could they – if I was a juror and I was listening to this account related to Jesus of Nazareth, and I asked these questions in my head as I'm hearing it, would this account stand up, and could I make this case in front of a jury? I think our young people need to know um, – and I talk about this in the new book. They need to know the whys behind the what. I suggest if we want to change your conversations with your kids, if they're, you're a parent or you're a youth pastor or you're a Christian educator, just begin to offer the two whys for every what you claim. And we make claims about Jesus, claims about the Bible, claims about God. These are the what. What is true about Jesus? What is true about the Bible, the teaching of the Bible? Fine. But kids want to know. I think young people want to know. Can you tell me why you think that's true? 
Because the other side says, I can tell you why this is true. We've done surveys. We've done research on this, blah, 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 blah. Can you tell me why you think that is true, that claim you just made? That's the first why. And the second why is even if I you told me there is some evidence for this, why should I care? <laughs> because it seems like an ancient claim, right? right? That is, it, yeah, you're interested at 58, but why should I be interested at 18? <laughs> and, and that's something that I think that we need to be able to help our kids, um, our young people uh, understand that how does this impact your life? Why, why does this make a difference? Why does this claim uh, change the way you think of yourself, your friends, your purpose, uh, your future? Uh, how does it help you change what you think about good and right and wrong and evil and beauty and, and all the things that we, we think are so well-defined by the Christian worldview? Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls of all ages, this is the mind we have access to this hour. So let us know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. i got some questions coming in for Jay Warner Wallace. Let me take a short break. We'll get back and we'll get them uh, on the show in just a minute. You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest on today's show for the whole hour. Let us know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. His latest book is called So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. And this uh, book is a really a powerful guide that helps you uh, share biblical truth with a generation that desperately needs to hear it. Uh, Jim, a question just came in. What is one prevalent lie about God and his character that you believe the youth have been believing that needs to be debunked? Well, boy, there's, that's, a, that's a great question, and there's probably a number. Um, one of the questions we hear a lot in um, when talking to Gen Z, and I do this at, at Summit Worldview Conference um, in uh, Manitou Springs, Colorado, where we have you know seven sessions over the summer, two weeks each, 180 students or so really just trying to figure out what is the Christian worldview in a very uh, immersion type of experience. It's great training for young people. But one of the questions we hear all the time is how is it? It's always, it's, it often comes back to some issue related to the problem of evil, right? Mm-hmm. Some issue related to how could a good, all powerful, all loving God allow this? Why would it, why would, and also it comes down to the issues about, well, why would God not accept everyone just as they are? I mean, we're in, this is, this is a generation, Gen Z, as you study them, that are more fluid and uh, probably diverse and accepting. Of, of every view related to ethnicity, uh, related to race, related to sexuality, related to identity, uh, gender identity. This is a very accepting generation. So, so for the most part, uh, the, some of the questions are, well, if there is a God, uh, even the God of Christianity, wouldn't, why wouldn't he uh, accept people the way they are? Um, and so there's usually some issue related to the problem of, of uh, evil or the problem of just uh, um, kind of the, the problem of exclusivity of Christianity, that, that God would require something of us that is uh, maybe not as what the definition of tolerance that the culture has um, has kind of sold our young people. This idea that, that unless you agree with me uh, and, and I agree that my view is equally meritorious to yours, in other words, it's equally valuable as your view, then you're not being tolerant of me. 
Um, so I have to help young people realize that, that that the first thing you need in order to have tolerance is a disagreement. You cannot you, you can't sacrifice the disagreement in this name of tolerance. You don't tolerate people with whom you agree. You agree with them. So so <laughs> yeah. it's, this is why we have to help our young people realize it's okay to disagree and to hold that some things are true and some things are false. But you just and you by the way you can hate evil ideas. You just can't ho- hate the people who hold evil ideas. That's a very different. Uh, that's the true de- definition of tolerance, right? It's just to maintain that that idea is 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 faulty. That idea is wrong. But I'm going to love and tolerate you anyway. Yeah, that gets to be a, a important distinction, doesn't it? Oh, it's it's an incredibly important distinction because I think that that the, the, the definition. Is so self-refuting that the current definition of tolerance is so self-refuting. This idea that um, we that every every notion is equally valuable, and therefore you cannot reject a view without being intolerant. Okay, well, okay. So here's my view. My view is that every view is not equally valuable, and some ideas should be rejected. Can you then, under you your view of tolerance, accept my view, which is contrary to yours? Well, no, of course you can't, because your view, though, says you must. Your view says that my view has to be accepted as equally meritorious, yet you reject my view. So you can't even live out this view consistently of tolerance the way it's being embraced by culture. We have to kind of help our young people get back to a a very classic, traditional view of tolerance. Mm -hmm. Jim, does the Z generation, do they want a dialogue, or are they inclined to try to set you up for a gotcha moment? Well, okay, so there's a couple. I think that the same motivations that have motivated all of us as humans, because we are all cannot escape the fact we are designed in the image of God, are still the motivations that drive young people. The only thing that's changed is the kind of technological context, right? So how we initiate relationships in a digital age is going to look different. But it also looked different when we invented the telephone. I mean, this is the standard landline. <laughs> Before right. we had that, we, we communicated and had relationships differently. And I'm sure the people, my grandmother's age, when they first saw their kids, having relationships that were entirely over the hard line telephone, they probably belly ached about, where's this going? You know, this is not a true relationship. So I think we have to see that it's the same impetus, right? It's the Mm -hmm. same drive on the part of young people just expressed differently. Uh, We we wrote the book very carefully uh, talking about the nature of love. So every chapter begins with the word love. How do we love young people enough to do the things we talk about in this book? Because what we recognize is as parents and as teachers is that you can make a claim but if that claim is not made in the context of relationship it's truth claims in the context of good relationships that are so influential and you can make a claim without having a relationship with somebody or you can have a relationship with somebody and never make a claim but those two approaches do not help shape the next generation and what they believe and what they know is true so so i would say that that this generation is so open to the kinds of deep relationships that even you might think, well, yeah, I'm 40 years older than those. Yeah, okay, fine. Uh, I, I'm 40 years older than they are too. But because I, I try to make young people my priority, and if, I, if they see that, that they are my priority, then that's where the relationship begins. And that's one of the things I think the church with the big C is going to have to em- embrace, that young people, Gen Z, are the future. They always have been. And if we care about the future of the church or the future of Christianity, well, then we need to help this generation using the technology that they're using and, and also understanding how that technology changes them. 
how that technology shapes them to reach them with the gospel. It's going to be a challenge. I mean, I think that that as an older guy, if you ask people my age, give me some descriptions of Gen Z, give me some adjectives you would use. They're almost always negative. So I'll get like five, six adjectives. You know, they're they're snowflakes. They're the, 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 all whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you expect to build a relationship with somebody who the first six adjectives you have coming out of your head are negative? I mean, if you want to have a relationship with somebody so that your truth claims actually are influential, you're going to have to rethink how we see the youngest among us. And I think a lot of us, as I get older, I'm less flexible. I'm more inclined to say, get off my front yard. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just what happens to us. We're going to have to fight that, I think, in order to embrace the next generation. Uh, Jim, are we trying to find common ground or what's the strategy? Oh, yeah, we definitely are trying to find common ground. And we're also, uh, first of all, recognize who they are. So we spent an entire chapter just talking about what are the nature, what's the, again, when you poll a whole massive demographic, that means that you can't, you got to be careful not to make absolute statements Mm -hmm. because there's going to be people who are nothing like this, right? But they're still Gen Z. But we do see some kind of trending and we try to talk about that. And one of the things we see in terms of trending is that this is a generation has more access to information than any other generation. That's, that's, indisputable. But they, as a result, they have less trust in the source because there's so many sources out there. And you can get eight different views on the same thing from eight different websites that all look equally legitimate, eight different voices on your social media, eight different news outlets. I mean, you can you can pretty much carve up this, this view, whatever view you're looking at, and, and get it. And you don't know who to trust then because you've got so, many, so much noise, so much digital noise. Mm-hmm. That's why I think as parents, we have an advantage. If you can be authoritative in the area where your kids have questions, you already have the relationship, especially in the elementary school and junior high years, you know, right before the teen years, you have the ability through your relationship. The question is, are you authoritative when they ask you a question about why would God require this view of sex? Or if God uh, is so powerful, why hasn't he stopped evil, even the evil we're seeing on social media today? I mean, there's lots of questions that we may not feel like we're authoritative, but we need to become authoritative because we already have the one half of the equation. We have the relationship half of the equation. All we need to do is to develop the authority half of the equation, and then guess what? You'll have more influence with your kids than anybody online because you have both those things. That's awesome. Now, uh, we need to go to break here in about a minute, but uh, some of the things that make up a Generation Z, they're, they're social justice-oriented, they're pragmatic, they're overwhelmed, and they're lonely. Huh. Yeah, isn't that interesting? The lonely That's part. So interesting. Is, is, yeah. Well, have you ever felt that way when you were walking through? An, uh, I take a lot of trips uh, to speak around the country, yeah. and I'm often alone, and I'm in a crowded airport. Yet, what do you feel? You feel lonely. Totally. Because you're not with anybody. There's nobody navigating this with you. That's yeah. what happens in a, in a noisy digital environment. Interesting. And we're going to take a little break. Uh, if you have a question for Jim Wallace, Jay Warner Wallace, let us know what that is. Send me a text eight seven seven nine three three two four. Eight four, especially if you have a Gen Z in your life, we'd love to hear what the questions would be. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. The book we're talking about is "So the Next Generation Will Know: Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World." Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. After a short break, we'll be right back.
You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Let us know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. It's written a book with uh, Sean McDowell called So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. Um, Jim, I'm just uh, fascinated with uh, the way you think, and I, I just... Uh, I love the way you write, and I'm engaged by all of your stuff. So thank you for putting out such great material. Well, I appreciate you saying that part of it. You know, you, you, you're, sometimes you write because you do, you do research, and sometimes you're right because it's just your experience. You know, you're writing from experience. And so this book for both of us was really more our effort to write from our experience. You know, I, I was a youth pastor for years when I finally got saved and went to seminary. I started uh, kind of coaching and, and teaching my own kids and serving in the local church as their children's pastor, then then their youth pastor in junior high, then finally as their high school pastor. And then I actually launched a church after that with, with, with college-age students. And so you, you, you train wreck enough things <laughs> in that experience that you feel like, hey, you know, I could probably help somebody else not – not train wreck it, if yeah. I, you know. So that's that's part of what we're trying to do here. I yeah. think, you know. Here's a question from a listener: Are there any things that you are currently investigating regarding God? Has He revealed any answers to you that you'd like to share? Oh yeah, actually, I I am working on something right now, and working on another um, concept uh, for a book. A lot of the concepts we 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 work on are are straight. I try to stay within my lane. You know, my lane is my identity as a cold case detective, and um, so there's stuff that I did in God's, in the cold case Christianity, which is really just kind of like, what's the evidence in the crime scene at any case, any crime that you would then investigate, right? You'd be talking to witnesses, you'd be looking at other forms of indirect evidence, whatever's in that crime scene, you'd be looking. But what if you had no crime scene at all? What if there was just nothing there? No witnesses, no claims, no physical evidence in a crime scene. I've had cases like that, right, where one, for example, a guy killed his wife and six years went by. He claimed that she ran off and people believed him, including the police department. Hmm. So when they finally opened it as a homicide investigation, six years had gone by. He had moved from the house. There was no crime scene to investigate. We have no, you know, the rumor that he killed her in had been completely converted and painted and, and everything was destroyed. There was no physical evidence. How do you make a case if there's nothing in the crime scene. Well, I think there's a way to do that. It's a strategy I'm going to talk about in the next book. And I think if you did that with, if you had no evidence in the three-year period of time related to Jesus's ministry, would you have enough? How would you make the case if there's nothing in the crime scene? Because I think this is a very powerful way to make the case. So it turns out the case for Jesus is so strong uh, for the Jesus that rose from the grave is so strong that even if you didn't have gospel accounts, you would go, whoa, Something happened here, you know, and so I think that's one of the things we're I'm, I'm looking at. That I, I actually was struck, I'm struck with the the strength of the case for Jesus of Nazareth, and I wonder, you know, so that's what I'm trying to do is to stay in my lane and, and help people see that no matter how you slice this cake, um, you end up in the same place. Yeah, I I, I think you're uh, you're onto something. I love your lane too, by the way. All right, here's another Thanks. question. Is the characteristics of Generation Z an American perspective, or do you find it to be the same in your engagements around the world? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a Western uh, phenomenon. That's most of the, the st strategies that we're talking about. I just yesterday, I, I, I track along with all articles that are written about Gen Z globally. And so yesterday I was reading one written by a Gen Zer in Pakistan. Oh wow! So here he is in Pakistan, writing for a, 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 a news outlet that's part of that region of the world. He's writing in English, uh, 
uh, it's, it's, you can tell it's kind of broken, but it's pretty good. And, and it's able to, so I'm able to kind of see what is he saying? So a lot of the overarching things that we're talking about are true for any set of young people that have been influenced by the same digital revolution that the West has been influenced by. He had in Pakistan also been influenced by that digital revolution. And 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 that's the thing that I think does separate this generation. So it's easy. Most of us would say, well, back in my day, you know, like everyone <laughs> thinks that their day had something, you know, and it's true. We all mm-hmm. are unique, right? Yeah. We talk about this in the book. There are certain things that are timely and certain things that are timeless. And, and so that's true for all of us. But this is the first generation in a long time that has experienced a technological revolution that occurred with such um, immediate results. So, you know, when transportation was created, that took several generations for everyone to own a car and to have the, the the technology change the culture. You know, if you were, this is why cities on the East Coast, like New York, are vertical cities that are highly dense. They're pre-car cities. Cities like Los Angeles, where I am, are post-car cities. They are not vertical. We don't have good rapid transit. Uh, they are horizontal. There's an entirely different cultural shift that took place once that kind of transportation was available to everyone. Well, there's a cultural shift that's taking place because we have digital um, technology available to young people. And that's the one thing that you see people talk about with Gen Z at the top of their list. I don't care who's writing the list. These are digital natives. Mm -hmm. I'm a digital immigrant. So are you. We came to this technology late. But these folks don't remember a time before this much digital noise was in their ear. And it does change things. And it just means that we're going to have to say, well, okay, yeah, you know, I, I get it. You know, I, I'm not saying this is a, a special, like they're facing unique, you know, really tough challenges. All I'm saying is they are facing real challenges that are driven by technology that we didn't, didn't have when I was a kid. Uh, so I'll give you an example of this. When I was a kid and when you were a kid, if we missed a show on TV – we had to wait until the rerun came 26 weeks later. Right, exactly. In the summer. <laughs> and if you missed the second rerun, you were done. Okay, you're not going to see it at all unless right. it goes into syndication. Well, these kids are, they released strange, um, uh, Stranger Things uh, on Netflix uh, on July 4th. A big release, uh, third season of a very popular um, uh, TV show. And it's not like it's releasing one week at a time. This released the entire episode, the entire season. You can binge watch it. You can be done with it in a day. And and at your demand, this is a generation that sees everything is available. They have complete media autonomy. They don't wait. They can select what media sources they want, what they don't want. They can watch it when they want, and they don't wait till 8 o'clock on Thursday night to see something. They're going to watch it whenever they want to watch it. It has increased their sense of control and autonomy. And all this digital information does is increase our sense of I can get it the way I want it, when I want it, how I want it, Mm -hmm. podcast or video or whatever I want. That gives you a sense of control and autonomy that I think places a challenge on us talking about a world that requires above anything else submission. And, and here we are with this meta narrative about submission called Christianity, trying to talk to young people who have a micro narrative they've carved out for themselves. They're watching just what they want. They have an echo chamber in terms of news, whatever it is, we all do now. And they are completely autonomous. So these are two things I think are in a collision course that uh, we're going to have to navigate that. And that's what we're trying to talk about in a book like this, because in the end, 
all odd. And we wrote this very carefully. Bill, I knew that if I wrote a book where we said, hey, there's a thousand things more you need to do as a parent. Well, nobody wants to write that book and nobody wants to read that book. Right. <laughs> so, so here's the question. Are there some opportunities that you already have in your day that are just organic that you could better leverage for the gospel? That's what we're trying to do. I love it. That's, a, I think, a more realistic approach, because if I tell you, yeah, here's the six more things you need to add to your life, no one's going to do that. But if I said, hey, here's six areas of your life you could subtly just just change and tweak to make the conversations richer to help your young people, that's something we can do. Yeah, I agree. I, I remember when uh, The Wizard of Oz was going to be on Easter Sunday, and, and you knew yeah. about a month in advance, and you could hardly wait. Oh, yeah. And, and by the way, if you didn't see it, then you didn't see it. You didn't and, see it. You waited a whole right. year. And that's why the programmers could say, hey, I'm going to hold this thing out, which is 25 years old or 100 years old, and I'm only going to play it once a year so it retains its its novelty and its impact. Mm-hmm. Well, well, now you can watch that thing on YouTube whenever you want for free. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's a completely different world. Now, Jim, when you talk about strategies for connecting with Generation Z, and you talk about how important it is to share stories, how do we do that without starting the story with, in my day— yeah, well, I think what you can do is we can leverage stories that are already out there. So, For so that's one of the things. Well, so it, it, we are a narrative uh, culture. Um, we, we this is why we're, everyone's been binge watching something like Stranger Things because they're they want to hear the steel story. What's going to happen in the story? Now that story, if you're watching it, it offers you. I've only watched now the first three or four episodes of this this season. Already, I can see talking points. Places to launch a conversation related to materialism, related to a number of, of Christian values that I think are clearly going to be train wrecked in this uh, episode. But the Christian narrative actually protects you from having the same kind of train wreck. So, so it's about us now using the story that we're both watching anyway and converting that into a conversation without being preachy, right? So, and by the way, We've all made a mess of this, right? So I, I'm giving you advice that I have tried, and and on occasion I just train wreck it, right? I just, <laughs> I just, you know, my kids know. Really, I can just watch something without you commenting on it. So, mm-hmm. so it's about us having, you know, pacing. You know your own kids. You have that relationship with you, with them. So hopefully that that you've got a relationship of forgiveness, right? You can ask for forgiveness. You can, you can be re- be real with your kids. But, but the reality is that if we don't leverage those stories. If we leave those stories um, without commentary, that the story itself becomes the commentary. And this is how um, the secular world has convinced our kids already of secular ideas. They are using the power of fiction, the power of stories uh, to, to teach worldview to our kids. That's already happening. It's up to us now to either find those stories that are equally persuasive. And right now, if I'm honest with you, I don't think that Christian uh, production companies are at the same level as non-Christian companies. So instead, I would suggest that we look at those productions that are out there that we can then turn into healthy conversations with our kids. Yeah. Jim, how good are we as uh, older Christians trying to step into their world, Generation Z world? I think... think you know, we always talk about how there are early adopters of technology, and because this generation, I think, is so driven by uh, by technology. I forget who the author was. I, now I'm gonna feel bad. I don't remember uh, who talked about. Perhaps this might be the last generation. If by generation we mean groups of young people, groups of people in the chain of of, of generations that are distinguished by their unique. 
um, ability to do something because it turns out my 75 year old mom can jump right in with social media and actually behave like a Gen Zer if she chooses to, <laughs> because the technology then becomes a leveler, right? Mm -hmm, we're we're yeah. all kind of, we're all kind of acting the same way. So, so a lot of it for me is I just learned to be an early adopter of whatever the technology is like the not don't resist it. Don't say, well, you shouldn't be on your phone all that much. Look, I've seen people on dates now where they both have their phone out, they're engaging each other, but they're also in constant engagement with something on the phone. Uh, and so they, this is part of the reality. Now you could sh shake your fist at this and say, that's not the way real relationships are built. Okay. You could do that. Uh, but I don't know you're putting that genie back in the bottle. I, I think the question is how do we, navigate a world now where that phone is going to be an important part of every aspect of your life. Um, it just is. And, and now I, I'm, I moderate it. I try to moderate it. And I, and I, I think it's just a part of the skill set and being in relationship is to know when to pay attention to the person you're with. But at the same time, I'm not somebody who says, let's just ban all phones. I think that doesn't really – can we navigate the world with the phone? I think we're going to have to for this next generation and help them see um, that there are good, they, they can have good relationships with people online, but those are, are different than the kinds of relationships they have. And This is why we feel lonely, I think. Mm -hmm. You think about this. You, we, what's lacking is the physical presence of the person that you used to be connected to. You might be on FaceTime or you might be texting with that person, but you're not in proximity to that person physically, geographically. So that's why I think uh, the more we're willing to let go of that and experience life from the isolation of a room on our phones, the more lonely we're going to feel because loneliness is somehow tied to physical proximity. Yeah, right. You are spot on. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We're going to take a short break and when we come back, we'll have one more segment with him. If you have a question, 877-933-2484. His great book is called So the Next Generation Will Know. Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. We'll be right back. Listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Thanks for being with me today. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest all hour. We're loving this time together with Jim and if you have a question, we've got time for a couple of more questions, 877-933-2484. Caller said, uh, I was once told that research says every fourth generation swings back to conservatism, not necessarily Christianity. Do you see that being the case? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, you know every generation is like hard to figure out where the lines are blurred. <laughs> They're not, you know, it's not like we, we, we know on a calendar, there's a mark that says the next generation's beginning. So, right. so it's a little bit blurred, but, but I think that it is true that each generation reacts in some way positively or negatively to the generation that, that is raising it. So that usually takes a couple generation difference, right? So like who are raising up Gen Zers? They're probably not millennials. They're probably Gen Xers that are raising up the Gen Zs. So they, are the public that primary force in the lives of Gen Zs are the Gen Xers who are raising them, the millennials who are slightly older who are watching and saying that's not for me or that is for me. Mm -hmm. So, so I think there's always going to be a reaction, and I have got great hope for. I think that there will be um, a reaction to 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 any move away from the church or any move in which the church is not seen in a favorable light in culture. 
uh, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that uh, God is in control of this, and and that the the people who are truly committed to Christianity are the true, you know, uh, Christ followers. There's they are going anywhere, and they haven't gone anywhere. What we've really seen is the shrinking of the the uh, cultural church. You know, the shrinking of the of the people who see the church as uh, uh, culturally acceptable because it's not as culturally acceptable anymore. So if that's why you were in before. You're probably out now, but that doesn't mean you were ever really in to begin with. So uh, look at what Jesus says in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you you when they insult you and they persecute you and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad, you know, for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's a very powerful statement, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. It tells us that we ought to expect um, that if you're a true Christ follower, that is different than being a Christ admirer or a Christ modifier or a Christ redactor. To be a Christ follower means that you're—get ready. It's going to be hard, and you're not going to be popular. And you'll be insulted and persecuted and falsely accused. And just be happy about that because it, it marks your distinction as a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Another question, uh, Jim. We don't want to answer questions that aren't being asked, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So what do we do when we're encountering people and trying to initiate a discussion on uh, sharing Christ? Well, okay, it's true that faith comes by hearing, um, but that's also what Mormons say when they use the Book of Mormon. Okay, so, so so this is I hear this all the time. You know, we we have a duty to defend what we believe, to make the case, to offer the reason for the hope that lies within us, and that is absolutely within the rich tradition of Christianity. Jesus constantly proved who he was prior to making claims. He said, "If you don't believe me, at least believe the evidence of these miracles I've worked in front of you." Read the Gospel of John. He does it over and over and over again. Even when his cousin has doubts and sends his followers, John sends his followers to Jesus. Are you the one? John's in custody. He wants to know, are you the one? Think about that. What does Jesus do? He works the miracles and reminds John's followers to tell John what they just saw. The blind have been healed. The deaf have been healed. He he makes an evidential claim. He provides evidence. He doesn't just tell John, hey, he knows the word. Just dwell on the word. Pray more. No, he just provides him with additional evidence and says, go back and tell John what you just saw. That to me is so striking. There's no way around the fact that Jesus knew to raise up young believers, you're going to have to give them the whys for every what. He did this constantly. He stayed with the disciples for 40 days in Acts 1, after the resurrection, giving them many additional convincing proofs. Really? Like the resurrection is not enough. (laughs) <laughs> no, apparently you need 40 more days. Okay, so that's the word, by the way, that we use for evidence for those convincing proofs. So I think in the end, this is well within our tradition. Yeah, we're not going to answer questions that aren't being asked, but do we know our kids well enough to know what their questions are? The facts that you might not be uh, getting questions asked of you does not necessarily mean your kids don't have questions. It may simply mean they don't want to share those questions with you because you've demonstrated you're not able to answer them. Let's just be honest. I mean, that's just that's that's so you'll see that one of the five or six things that young people say over and over again when they leave the faith is that nobody had answers to my questions or they tried to stifle those to silence those questions with claims like, hey, you just need this in the Bible. It's about faith. 
um, you just need to trust. And, and, and so this is, we need to say, of course, it's about faith. But faith is what you do at the end of the evidence trail when you still have unanswered questions, and you will. This is true for every jury trial as well. Faith is not the thing you do in, in lack of evidence altogether or in spite of evidence to the contrary. Faith is the step you take at the end of the evidence trail because you're always going to have more unanswered questions. After the entire life, three years with Jesus, Thomas still had unanswered questions. I'm sure as they went out in the book of Acts, they did so confidently even though they had unanswered questions. They still moved confidently because they had enough evidence to take that step we call faith in confidence. So yes, it is about faith, but not an uninformed faith, and our young people need to see there's a difference. And, and by the way, the more we have moved away from our rich evidential history, the, the first leaders of the church were all excellent apologists. If you look them up historically, these folks could make a defense, even when they didn't want to. Irenaeus could make a defense. Ignatius could make a defense. Polycarp could make a defense. It's only relatively recently that we have decided, for some theological reasons, many of us, that we don't need to make a defense. And now we are not capable of making a defense. And young people uh, are suffering because of that. Mm-hmm. Jim, I like my next listener would benefit from your book greatly. I would uh, send her my copy, but I got some guac on it. Um, but the question <laughs> is, what is the best way to navigate responding to a 25-year-old son or daughter who has rejected the faith? Okay, well, first of all, uh, be, be, be patient because um, yes. it's really easy to kind of get panicky, right? But if you knew Jim Wallace when uh, I was 34 and you were to ask somebody, is this guy ever going to become a Christian? I guarantee you everyone who knew me would say, that guy's not going to be a Christian. Not a chance. Because, yeah, I was just too obstinate yes. and I was too verbal to, to about my opposition. <laughs> I had lots of things that people couldn't answer. You know, I just I was too uh, kind of um, feisty about it, you know. So so I think people would have said that. And at 35, everything changed. So so don't give up and don't lose hope. Uh, also, though, uh, know that you have to be prepared. And I say this all the time. I've got people in my family that are not interested right now in hearing any more about the gospel. And when that happens, you default to the two things you can do that make all the difference in the world, and that is you model Christ for them so that you don't become another obstacle to the gospel, and you show them what that transformed life looks like. And two, you you pray. You pray that, that God will move them into the category that will open their ears to hear the gospel. I've never said that the evidence is all you need. No, the evidence is the tool by which People whose ears have been opened by God see the evidence and make a decision. Yeah. Um, but, but that has to happen first. It's, it's, it's God doing something first. And, and you can bang your head and, and make the case and make the case and make the case. But it turns out if you can be patient and quiet and trust God for this long and, and model Christ for them and pray for them to move them into the category in which they would be receptive to what you've already told them, then guess what will rush back to their memory is every conversation you've ever had. So, so a lot of it is, um, don't make it that the gospel is offensive enough. As we always say, don't be more, don't add offense to it with our demeanor. And so I, I think for me, I've never panicked about my own kids because, uh, I don't have any Christians in my family. I didn't have any growing up. I think I have a few now. Uh, but, um, but I didn't have those, and look what happened. God can do what God can do. And so I just want you to, people to have confidence. And by the way, remember that evangelism is not a game of tennis where you're hitting the ball over the net and hope that you can hit. It's a game of baseball. You get up to bat, 
Other people are in the game with you. You want to advance. You feel like if I don't get the home run and he doesn't come to faith today, my son, I lost. I didn't achieve what I was trying to achieve. What you're trying to do, though, is make contact with the ball and just advance your son a few feet along the base path. Because over the next 10 years, other people will get up to hit the ball. And they will continue to advance him along that base path until finally he's home. But if you think that you need a home run and you don't see him cross the plate today that you failed, well, you're going to be discouraged. Also, though, when, when I do talk to somebody and I see them cross home plate, I don't take credit for that because mm-hmm. I know that that's somebody else's work making contact with the ball for 10 years. I just knocked him out the last few feet. So that's important for us to realize you're not alone. Yeah. Jim, we have just about a minute left, and uh, my listeners are absolutely fascinated with you. And I just got a, a message saying, uh, thanking Jim for equipping the body of Christ. And the, the listener was curious as to what role do you think you fulfill in God's kingdom? Do you see yourself as an evangelist, a prophet, a teacher? Uh, I, I've learned uh, that the most important thing I can do, and the thing I'm proudest of, is not apologetics. It's my marriage. So I see myself now as a guy who's uh, worked hard to be in a place in his retirement to serve the church. Um, but first, I have to serve uh, my wife and my my family. And that's the first thing I do, which goes to show that all of us could be that person. And whatever I'm doing, uh, it, however I've accomplished writing books or any of this, every one of us could do that. Because we all have that opportunity at some point. You know, when you retire, you think, I'm going to serve at the church a little more often than I used to. Well, that's what I'm doing now. The church is just the big church with the big C, right? Yeah, right. But, but that's how I see myself, as just another member of your family who is trying to serve in the church. Yeah, you made my day and many others. Jim, thanks for doing the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I so appreciate you. Bob. I will look forward to our next visit. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Jay, yep, Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. The book that we've been chatting about all hours called So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. But take my word for it, any uh, Jay Warner Wallace book you get your hands on, you will love, you will enjoy, and you will want more. That's just uh, my opinion. Thanks for listening today. If you missed any of the show, go to MyFaithRadio.com. You can re-listen to it right there on the show page. Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold. Have a great evening. As you lay your head on the pillow, know that God's working out his great plan in your life. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.